So we have been talking about the spiritual disciplines and how important those are in order to keep us growing spiritually, to open the door to allow the spirit to work in us, to form us into the person that God wants us to be. Now we're moving into the area of putting all of those individual pieces together into community. So we talked about community a little bit last week. We're going to talk about community a little bit together this morning. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, to the 17th chapter, picking it up at verse 20. We'll read through verse 26. This is part of the prayer of Jesus. It is part of his prayer after the celebration of the Lord's Supper and as he's making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. My prayer, verse 20, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you. I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So a friend of mine sent me an article this week. It was taken from the Frankfurt State Journal. It's an article written by Dr. Chuck Queen of the Emanuel Baptist Church in Frankfurt, Kentucky. It's a story about Albert Schweitzer, an amazing man, a renowned theological scholar, a concert pianist, and a medical doctor, and Dr. Fred Craddock a gifted preacher, and a professor at Chandler School of Theology. When Dr. Albert Schweitzer was in the second half of his career, he devoted himself to the building and serving of a medical mission in Lombarine, Africa. But he couldn't get missionary support because people were suspect of his theology. And so he would go around in the United States and perform concerts in order to raise money to fund his work. In the first half of his career, you see, Dr. Albert Schweitzer had written several books. And one of those books, entitled The Quest for the Historical Jesus, had brought him significant pushback. The late Fred Craddock read that book when he was in his early 20s, and he thought Dr. Schweitzer's Christology was woefully inadequate. 
Living in Knoxville, Craddock heard that Schweitzer was coming to Cleveland to dedicate a new organ. And so the article reported that there would be refreshments and a time of conversation with Schweitzer afterwards. And Dr. Craddock was so passionate about his view of Jesus and so confident that Schweitzer's view was wrong that he bought a bus ticket to go to Cleveland. And he hoped to get the opportunity to drill Schweitzer and to set him straight on his understanding of Jesus Christ. After the concert, Craddock was one of the first people to get a seat in the fellowship hall. He plopped down in the very first row with his questions all written out. After a bit, Schweitzer came in. Shaggy white hair, big white mustache, sort of stooped over a bit with a cup of tea and some refreshments in his hands. And while Craddock was biting at the bit in order to get his chance to hammer Schweitzer on his theology of Jesus Christ, Dr. Schweitzer came in and thanked everyone. You've been very warm and hospitable to me. And I want to thank you for that, he said. I wish I could stay longer, but I need to get back to Africa because many of my people are poor and diseased and hungry and dying, and I have to help them. We have a medical station at La Barine. And then he said, if there's anyone here in this room who has the love of Jesus, would you be prompted by that love to go with me and to help me out? Craddock said he looked down at his questions and realized how foolish they were. Craddock would later write about that particular occasion, and I quote, and I learned again what it means to be a true follower of Jesus and had hopes that I too could be one someday, end quote. So last week we talked about family being a good metaphor for the church. We said that the church, like our family, is expected to embrace all of its members, whether or not we think that they're deserving, whether or not we think they're lovable, whether or not they agree with us on the significant issues, and whether or not we think they can actually contribute to the family's well-being. We noted that the church, like a family, includes people of different personalities, different interests, different incomes, different values, different beliefs, and different abilities. And we notice, noted that those differences should not hinder us, but should enrich us. And we noted that when the church decides to become Messiah's community, that is, a community that reflects Messiah's love and his healing and his compassion, rather than our community and what we want it to look like and what we like, then lives and the faith community will be transformed. Sadly, the church, and I use the church with the big C, the church here, especially in North America, has lost its focus and its way. Today, there are over 30,000 different denominations that underscores that churches and, in fact, entire denominations seem to be splitting all the time. 
typically over fine points of doctrine, over differences of priority, or over inflexible perspectives. Currently, the Reformed Church in America and the United Methodist Church are the latest to splinter. The Christian Reformed Church has split from the Reformed Church in America quite some time ago over day school education and lodge membership. The Protestant Reformed Church and the United Reformed Church separated from the Christian Reformed Church over common grace and biblical interpretation and women in leadership. Sunday morning still remains the most differentiated time of the entire week. Anglos primarily worshiping with Anglos, Hispanics primarily with Hispanics, the wealthy with the wealthy, the poor with the poor, the educated with the educated. People who prefer to sing a cappella avoid those who prefer to sing with accompaniment. Those who like to sing hymns disassociate themselves from those who like to sing only the Psalms or scripture songs. When I was pastoring my first church, I invited the pastors in my local community to come and to pray together. And some came. But I was young and naive at that point. The pastor of the local Baptist church refused. He said his church was opposed to ecumenism. The local Lutheran pastor, Wisconsin Senate, apologetically said to me that his denomination wouldn't allow him to pray with Christians from other denominations. The local Catholic priest didn't respond. We couldn't even pray together. We like to be right. We form our opinions, our ideas, our perspectives, our values, and our beliefs, and we hold them tightly. They are our truth. Forbearance and compromise are seen as apathy and weakness. We ignore people who disagree with us, and the result worldwide is a fractured church. Sadly, our insistence on being right has seldom made us more loving and more compassionate or more Christ-like. So what does that say about the church? Christ's church being split into so many factions makes a mockery of Christ's prayer, the one we just read, the one he prayed the night before he died, the prayer here in John 17, the prayer that commands the unity for his family. And as a result, has dramatically compromised his witness in this world. On the one hand, we affirm one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. We profess one holy Catholic church. But the church, again, capital C, models something quite different today. According to David Kinneman in his book, Unchristian, the world sees Christians as judgmental and hypocritical. In a recent North American study, less than 3%, less than 3% of those between the ages of 16 and 30 have a favorable impression of evangelical Christians. So 
So I want to talk about that for a few moments this morning. This is for the church again, large C, very difficult challenge. I have five points, and they each start with a catchy title. One, two, three, four, and five. One. Jesus said, John 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also so that there will be one flock, one flock and one shepherd. So the key word here in that verse is one. You see, God's plan does not include division. God's plan has always been to bring people together from all nations into an inclusive community of loving persons that are experiencing God's gracious provision. This unity in this fellowship is not only possible, it is required from those who say they would follow Jesus. As the early church experienced differences, the apostle Paul would come and remind them that they were one. He does that, for example, in Colossians 3. He says, there is no longer Greek or Jew. There is no longer circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free. But Christ is all in all. He talked about it again in Galatians, third chapter. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Jesus Christ. Apparently, even if we have some rather significant differences, we are to be one in Christ. Barbarians make the list. Barbarians, savage, uncivilized, primitive people. And then there's the Scythians, crude and violent terrorists. They're to be welcomed into the fellowship. No law-abiding Jewish believer would have even considered the possibility of inviting a Gentile into the fellowship, let alone a barbarian. This statement from Paul is as radical and, and outrageous then as it is today. It's also characterized as a statement of love and grace, which are to be marks of Christ's church. But imagine for a moment inviting terrorists, those convicted of road rage, those who are violent offenders, to join us in worship here this morning. Imagine intentionally inviting dishonest merchants and gypsies and prostitutes and idolaters, which was the makeup of the Corinthian church we talked about last week, to a Leo's-style dinner. I can only imagine that the pushback would be rather intense. But Jesus might consider it an act of love and grace. Sadly, I think the church today is better known for what we're against. Against same-sex marriage, against abortion on demand, against divorce, against pornography, than we are known for what we're for, for Jesus Christ, for loving one another and our neighbor, for caring for the poor and the hurting and the ill. 
See, God's divine plan in Jesus' prayer has always been to unite a people from all nations into an all-inclusive community of loving followers to live together under God's precious and generous provision. And he calls us to model that not only in our personal lives, but also in our faith communities. So he prays. John 17, I pray for those who will believe in me through the apostles' message that all of them may be one, just as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one, as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that we may be brought to a complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved me. When the church gets together and celebrates communion, we proclaim that the many become one by uniting in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. When we celebrate the sacrament of baptism together, we celebrate one another as family. But Paul even pushes that a bit farther he challenges Christ followers in, in the city of Corinth to be of one mind. 2 Corinthians 13, as he signs off, he writes, Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection, listen to my appeal, and be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. He said it in 1 Corinthians as well. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no division among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. So we're called to be one in mind. We tend, I think, to push back on that a little bit. I mean, how can I agree with people who are unwilling to agree with me? But Paul reminds us he's not talking about our mind. He's talking about God's mind. We're all to be united with God's mind. So we all need to come together and seek what God's mind is, what his will is. We're to do that together so that we can acknowledge together that Christ is all in all. When we strive for that, when that becomes our passion together, the differences will begin to fade and we'll be able to live together as one. So please understand, I am not suggesting the demise of all denominations or all different theological perspectives or all unique worship styles. I'm not suggesting that we change our theological convictions or lower our standards in any way to the lowest common denominator. No, I'm just simply pleading here this morning that the church, Big C, needs to come together in unity to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to seek God's will together and to learn to live into that will so that the world will know that Jesus is Lord. We need to be, we need to be adamant that our differences on the less essentials do not divide us or taint our witness. 
We need to be unwilling to compromise our identity or be distracted from his mission. And please understand, less essential doesn't mean it isn't important. It just simply means it's not the main thing. And as I've said before, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Less essentials cannot be allowed to divide us. One. Two. St. Augustine is credited with saying, in essentials, unity. In doubtful matters, liberty. In all things, charity, love. This was Augustine's approach to dealing with the inevitable differences that occur in the church. Again, we like things our way. That's sort of normal. It's human. And there are many people that believe there are only two ways to do things. There's your way to do things. And there's the right way to do things. Which is generally known as my way of doing things. John Wesley took what Augustine said and he paraphrased it. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. Wesley was working with Methodist societies of people that came from a huge variety of different backgrounds. He found divisions in his Methodist societies all too frequent and all too contentious in the church. And so Wesley came to the conclusion that the only way the church was going to be able to remain unified in Christ was first to distinguish between essentials and less essentials and hope and pray that the discussion about what was essential and what was less essential wouldn't break the church in half. And second, to discover how to accept our differences among the less essentials. And then third and finally, not to allow the differences to overshadow our common faith, the main thing. So Wesley acknowledged that when we allow an issue to divide us, what we are really saying is, my own personal perspective is more important than the unity of God's family. Wesley believed our love and commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord was the one essential. Everything else, he said, was less essential. Wesley believed our love for Jesus and his call to love one another requires us to live together in peace despite any differences of personal opinion. So in underscoring this as the one essential, Wesley was underscoring what Jesus said when Jesus answered the question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' answer, while Jesus said it was one thing, we often divide into two parts or into two things. The first part, like Wesley said, involves our love and our commitment to Jesus as Savior and Lord. The great commandment calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And then Jesus went on to say, and there's a second part that's exactly like the first part, and that is we're to love one another, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That is, we're to love our fellow believers. We're to love our neighbors, our family, and our friends. I wonder what it would take for you to disown or leave your spouse or to disown, to disown your children or to terminate a friendship 
with your BFF? Would it be a burnt meal? A bad haircut? A four-year-old who yells at you, I hate you? Telling a lie? Voting the wrong way? A ticket? An arrest? An abortion? Adultery? In the church, I have known people that have left a fellowship because they painted the narthex a color they didn't like. I've known people who have left church because the church has been singing majesty or father I adore you way too many times. People have left church fellowships over drums, over screens, over drama, over a building program, or over a council's decision. Why is it so easy? And I ask myself this over and over. Why is it so easy for us to break a community so for so small reasons that Jesus considers so critically important? Now, please understand, I'm not saying it's easy for us to set our personal opinions aside. It's a real challenge to love somebody who really irritates us and gets under our skin or to worship alongside of somebody who constantly disagrees with us. But the truth is, if it were easy, we would need the Father to remind us. We would need Jesus to model it for us and we would need the Holy Spirit to assist us. The truth is, it's incredibly difficult to love people who look think, act, and believe differently than we do. So I can only imagine how difficult it must be for Jesus to love me. And not only did he love me, he was willing to lay down his life for me. I think as a church, again, large C, we need to learn to hold on to the essential a bit more tightly and hold on to the less essentials a bit more loosely. James Bryant Smith writes, if we do not look, act, worship, or believe as I do, but your heart still beats with love for Jesus, then regardless of our differences, we can and we must have fellowship with one another. So is our love and our commitment to Jesus strong enough to hold us together even if and when we disagree? Is our commitment and love to each other and to the unity of Christ's church strong enough to hold us together even if we don't always agree? Two. And then three. There are multiple causes of division in church and denominations. Doctrinal issues often come to mind first, and some of those seem fairly significant. Personal perspectives, that is, opinions, have people changing churches on a fairly regular basis. In Colossians 3, Paul mentions race and gender and class, that is, wealth, as sources of contention and disunity. Some people just don't like conflict 
And yet the truth is, there isn't any place that's free from it. Personalities often conflict. Generations conflict. Styles and tastes conflict. Values conflict. They conflict in families. They conflict in marriages. They conflict in churches. For the church, the model of community is found in God's essential nature. Trinity. Three persons in one. The essence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is community. Mutually indwelling and mutually interdependent. We can cite the differences and we celebrate them. Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, we say. And we challenge the unity that they have. Serene Jones writes, God's very reality is radically multiple, radically relational, and infinitely active. To authentically reflect God, we, his body, the church, though many, must learn to become one. Many churches have traditionally had committees, a discipleship committee, an evangelism committee, a building committee. A committee, this is my definition, is a few people that come together to create work for more people. And so some churches have transitioned to what they call teams. And a team, in my estimation, are the people that are involved in ministry coming together to figure out how they're going to do ministry together. And so a team, in my estimation, is a step up from a committee. But the scripture never invites us to populate committees or teams. What it does is it calls us to populate community, his community to be a people gathered around the spiritually transforming power of Jesus who are doing his will and doing his work. And so Jesus showed us how. Jesus took a widely divergent group of individual misfits and he transformed them not into a committee and not into a team, but into a community. Please understand, community is not something that you and I create. Community exists. And you and I need to learn to live into it by God's grace. It already exists because it exists in our Father. It exists in Jesus. It exists in the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And when we, like those early disciples, step into community, we can change the world. That's three. And there's four. Getting past our natural instinct to if we disagree, we should divide or simply leave. That takes hard work. It doesn't happen automatically. We can't just simply throw a switch. Cultivating a Christ-centered faith that promotes that kind of unity requires four basic things. First, clarity about his mission and his values and his mind that undergird our community. Do we really remember what the main thing is? Are we keeping the main thing the main thing? Second, a commitment to live out his values and his mission by engaging the transforming presence of Jesus Christ through corporate worship, through fervent prayer, through engagement in the inspired scripture, and through sacrificial service. 
Third, a covenant that embraces our coming together in community, promised in our baptism, affirmed in our profession, lived out in our life together. And fourth, embracing the challenge of living into God's grace as his forgiven child, freely forgiving one another. Four things. And then fifth and finally, Andrew Murray said, the key to unity is to have a deep respect and reverence for the work of the Holy Spirit in another believer. It's our responsibility to bring love to and to seek unity with those with whom we disagree. And so John Wesley offers five suggestions. Treat those first. Treat those with whom you disagree as your brothers and sisters. Remember, we're family. So, spend time with them. Go out to lunch. Have a cup of coffee. Attend a ball game or go for a walk together. Get to know their heart. Second, do not speak or think evil of another. Of a brother or a sister. Refrain from underscoring your differences and focus on what you have in common. Jesus. I spent an hour this past week with members of the Denominational Prayer Leaders Network. It's an organization of about 25 to 30 different denominational prayer leaders that represent about 150,000 congregations in the United States. They include Adventists and AG and Pentecostal and Holiness and Baptists and AME and Quakers and the CRC. We acknowledge our differences. We are blessed by them. We focus on what unites us. We love Jesus. We love each other. And so we pray together every month. Third, pray for those you disagree with daily. Pray for those you disagree with daily and offer to pray with them. Fourth, encourage those you don't get along with in their doing good. Acknowledge them, affirm them, appreciate them. And fifth, collaborate with them in ministry. Come alongside and serve with them in something that they're passionate about. Gordon Cosby, founding pastor of the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., was once asked, is there any reason that you can think of to violate the value of community. We've all heard the excuses. I just can't get along with them. I don't see eye to eye with them. I was offended by. I couldn't take it anymore. Sometimes, you know, breaking community is the, is the only way. Sometimes it's the lesser of two evils. Uh, I think God would understand. I don't think so. I understand we've all violated community. We're sinners. We tend to prioritize our stuff. We insist on our truth. We have even gossiped about others in our community. Many of us have experienced the pain of being in community and have personally withdrawn 
at least for a time. Some of us have even vowed never to put ourselves back into that situation or at risk again. Well, when Gordon Cosby was asked, is there any reason to violate the value of community? Without hesitation, his answer was, no, there is never, ever any reason to violate community because when you violate your essence, when you violate your essence, you have nothing of value to offer. Let's pray about that. Father, make us one as you are one. Make us one so that we can be together in unity. Make us one, Lord, so that the world will know who Jesus is. Because only by your power and your presence, Lord, can we be one. Father, this is our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.